we are starting a new series. And this series will carry us through December. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians, then 2 Thessalonians. And this will be an opportunity to look at a variety of different issues that are very relevant to our Christian faith. And so let me give you a little bit of a background here, because the overall theme is certainly second coming. Are you ready for the second coming after you hear old Joel talking about this today? Certainly that is the case. And interestingly enough, I had not noticed this until I did some of the uh, background research. Every one of the chapters in 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the second coming. I had not really paid attention to that before. And the reason this particular letter we're going to focus on for the next couple of weeks was written is, as we'll see in just a minute, Paul was there in Thessalonica but now has left and headed on to Berea, to Athens, and now he's in Corinth. Now he had sent Timothy back and has a report that they were struggling because of their faith, this new church that was planted. And he was only there for three weeks, three Sabbaths. So in some respects, these are very young Christians, and they're struggling with some of these issues, and especially... They have had a few of the members of the church die, and now they're wondering, well, you've been talking about the fact the Lord is coming. What about that? So this then gives Paul a chance to really begin to educate us about what we call eschatology in times. And so he's reminding them of God's supernatural power in the midst of facing a great deal of persecution. If you want to understand where this is, Paul has come over. First of all, he has been in Philippi, and there, while he is in Philippi, he is thrown in prison, and it is a difficult time, but he establishes a church in Philippi, then comes now down to Thessalonica, then Berea, eventually in Athens, and of course then in Corinth. And so this is his outreach to Macedonia, which is, and then Achaia, which we're going to hear about in the passage we look at, but this is all part of Greece. And so that gives you a little bit of an idea of that. What was Thessalonica like? Well, it turns out it was the capital of that Macedonian area. Uh, it was very prestigious. It's a busy city. It was significant for two reasons. Number one, there is a natural harbor. I'm going to show you a picture of that now from Thessaloniki. Um, and also, it was where the very significant Roman road, the Ignatia Way, comes from. So there were both travelers along the road. There were travelers that came in through ship. And as a result, it was a very significant trade route. Because of that, it was also culturally diverse. It had a very cosmopolitan population, different cultures, many of whom believed in different gods. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. But it also had a very large Jewish community. There were some very significant synagogues there, and that large Jewish community was one of the things Paul took advantage of because he is a Jew and because he had taught in so many synagogues. He would then be able to go to the synagogue and really talk to people in the synagogue about Jesus. And so, because he did so, many people came to faith, but then, very quickly, because this kind of burgeoning church was developing, the Jewish leaders were very angry with him, formed a mob, drove him out of the city. And it is uh, so typical that uh, uh, Paul shows up, he leads people to Christ, and eventually there's a mob, and a, a riot, and a mob, and he leaves the city. Reminds me of this one English bishop. They said, you know, wherever Paul went, there was first a riot, and then he was pushed out of the city. 
And wherever I go, they serve tea, you know, and in some respects, things are very different for us today, but it wasn't there. And they accused the Christians, by the way, of acting against the decrees of Caesar. They made a false argument that they were making Jesus their king instead of Caesar. So they then got cooperation with many of the Roman leaders. Um, I have now had a chance to go to Thessaloniki, but you have the ancient city of Thessalonica in the city. Now, if you go travel to Greece, and we're talking about going to Greece next year, um, when you go to Philippi, the city is far away. So you see Philippi pretty much the way it was with Paul. When you go to Corinth, the city of Corinth is very different. So you can see what it was like there. In some of these cities, Thessaloniki, um, they've kept parts of it. As you can see, they always built up. So you can see this was one of the amphitheaters, but you can see this was right next to some of the shops uh, that were taking place. And they've actually left some of the pillars and other things so you can get a sense of what it was like uh, being a sea town and a coastal town where indeed there was a great deal of cosmopolitan, almost eclectic kind of individuals. When we were there, though, the um, individual that took us there made a passing comment, which I thought was much more significant than he made out to be. Because if you go to the modern city of Thessaloniki, they'll also point out that over there is Mount Olympus. And all of a sudden I said, wait a minute. Do you, anybody here remember their Greek mythology? Remember Mount Olympus? Who was on Mount Olympus? Zeus and others and things like this. Well, it turns out that those people in this city, whenever they would wake up, they would see in the distance across this uh, inlet here, Mount uh, Olympus. Uh, now, it turns out it's about 100 kilometers from there, about 80 uh, miles, because you have to go around to get to it. But the bottom line is, is if you were living in that world of Greek mythology, you probably thought there were Greek gods on the top of that mountain. And so when they talk about these false gods and this religious view, this, I think, explains even more so why they were really hostile uh, to the Christians because they were not only uh, seen as replacing the Roman Caesar, but even replacing the Greek gods. And they could see Mount Olympus from where they were located. So anyway, that's one of those points of uh, culture that I did not realize until I actually came to the town itself. So let's, if we can, real quickly read through uh, the first couple of verses that we see here in the first chapter. And we see, first of all, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, first of all, of course, we see that he mentions Timothy and Sylvanius. Uh, those were people that traveled with him. Now, this, because he says, I, is only related to him. But he is their spiritual father. He had been with them. And as I said, he sent Timothy back to actually encourage the Christians in Thessalonica for a while. And they returned back with a concern about, well, we've already had the unexpected death of some of our members. Um, you said Jesus is going to return. What happens to those 
who are now in the grave. And, of course, it's a question that we all ask uh, if we've lost a loved one. And so, first of all, he thanks them for being faithful believers. And then, as we'll see, he really commends them, we'll look at this more in just a minute, for their example. Because they've already had a steadfast faith. And now, interestingly enough, that is being actually promoted to other parts of Macedonia. And so it is a good example of how our faith is sustained by faith hope and love. And so we certainly see that there as well. And as Christians, we can learn a lesson because over the last couple of weeks, we've heard this idea of abiding in Jesus. Remember when Jonathan Teague taught just a few weeks ago, he talked about what it means to abide. And I thought, you know, if you look at this, when we abide in him, certainly Jesus says we will bear much fruit. But also I gave you a couple of other places because Jesus can give you faith that moves mountains. Jesus gives you hope that doesn't disappoint, and Jesus gives you love that never fails. Especially faith that moves mountains, that's the theme in the most recent book by Robert Jeffress, who was in studio with us the other day. But it's just a reminder again that once we abide in Christ, we will manifest so many different things in our lives. But then, if you were looking for some other verses, if you're taking some notes, I thought, let's hear from Peter. Paul and John. What did they say about this idea of abiding? First Peter says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that what your faith and hope are in God. Great verse to memorize if you'd like to do so this week. In Romans, we've been going through the book of Romans. We haven't gotten to this passage yet, but Pastor Graham, I'm sure, will highlight it when we do because he has been talking about the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound, once again, we see in hope. And then we see when John is writing in 1 John, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So we get hope and love and peace and faith. Those are all things that run all the way through the New Testament. We see this not only in what Paul writes to those in Thessalonica, but also, interesting enough, what Peter, John, and others talk about as well. Well, let's continue on, verse 4. And in verse 4, we see, For we know... Brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And so here we see again this idea of the power of the Holy Spirit, something Pastor Graham has been teaching on over the last couple of weeks. And I think it is interesting to see the faith that they show after only having been with Paul for three weeks. Think about that. Where were you? When you became a Christian, I'm assuming most of us in the room are Christians, but uh, maybe not everyone, but where were you three weeks after you became a Christian? How strong in your faith were you? And yet, look at this. This is the case. He talks about the fact that the reason for that is not due to what they could manifest, but it's due to the fact that the Holy Spirit came and lived in their lives and sustained them while they were not even able there to minister to them which I think is very interesting as well. And then he spends a little bit of time talking about how he and his entourage, if you will, the others that traveled with him, were very different from these other itinerant preachers because they had a parental love for them. 
And he even now affirms the divine source of their conversion. You know, you've seen some people that become a Christian, and it is literally like a light switch. One day they're like this, the next day they're like that. And so he's talking about some of this as well. And really, if you think about this, he and his companions didn't really have a long time to persuade those in Thessalonica about the truth of the gospel. They were only there, essentially, for three Sabbath days before they were run out of town. So really, it's a perfect testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the fact that that gave conviction to those individuals. And we are called, of course, to be a witness, as we see both in our words and our lives. And that is really the testimony that they have, because here the conversion of those individuals was so significant that I think it really shows the power of conversion, which we sometimes see in individuals who, because they commit their lives to Jesus Christ, become new creatures, as it says in Second uh, Corinthians 5.17. Or another key verse... Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3, that we planted the seed of the gospel, or they watered the seed, but ultimately God causes the growth. And probably one of the best examples in the New Testament, and this uh, epistle of those individuals who actually were radically transformed almost immediately uh, due to the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Well, let's finish off the passage here. We'll pick it up in the middle of uh, the fifth uh, verse and where it says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Look at that. So that we need not say anything, for they themselves report uh, concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from, what? Idols. Just think of the idols that might have been there. To serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And there you see that reference to the second uh, coming as well. Nine times we will see that he says, you know. Now, you know, sometimes is a phrase we use when we don't know what to say. You know, you know, you hear people say, you know, but here it is, you know. In other words, it's not just something I believe, but you know it as well. And he uses that to say, really, I'm reminding you of something you heard me preach about in the synagogues or out as I was leading you in some kind of study outside of the synagogue. And so the opponents there of Paul which were speaking out against them, he says, well, you know what kind of men we were compared to these individuals that are bringing false accusations against us. He says, in some respects, we're gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of your own children. goes on to say that these other men were trying to take advantage of you, but we're not trying to take advantage of you or deceive you. But if anything, we want to warn you, just as Jesus did, in Matthew 7, which we looked at uh, this last year, that sometimes these false teachers are like wolves in sheep's clothing, ready, ready to tear the sheep apart. And instead, he's pointing out that we were so tender and loving, we treated you as a mother would treat a newborn baby. 
And he said that the world would actually ultimately know that we are his disciples. By what? By the love that we show for one another. And so we can see that here he also is commending them for becoming imitators of Paul and his companions. And so here we see how important that was to become imitators of them in the midst of affliction. Again, his argument is only the Holy Spirit can give people joy in an affliction like this. Uh, If we had more time, I would focus on the fact that what it's like right now for believers in other parts of the world that are facing affliction. Many of those in Muslim countries that Joe Rosenberg's been talking about. And so how can they have joy in the midst of that affliction? I think it's due to the Holy Spirit. Natural human joy is oftentimes based on what? Circumstances. You know, when things are going well, we're happy. When things are not going well, we're upset. And so, if nothing else, to use a reference that he uses in the book of Philippians, we can learn to be content in all circumstances, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. So this is the beginning of First Thessalonians, and I think that this will be an opportunity to begin to think about how to apply this, because here we see they were showing joy in the midst of suffering. Uh, they didn't even have to preach in those areas. What happens after this is the testimony of those in Thessalonica now is spreading to other parts of Macedonia, might have spread certainly to Berea, which is not far away from that, may even all the way up to the uh, uh, Philippi and things of that nature. And in those particular stories already developing, and even to our day, we see people showing inexplicable joy in the midst of suffering. And it's a lesson for us to learn in this country, but also a lesson for believers in other parts of the world facing persecution to learn as well. There's really no natural explanation for somebody who can be joyful in the midst of that suffering. It would only come from Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So in the time we have remaining, what I thought we might want to do is recognize that, as Pastor Graham has already pointed out, we live in the day after 9-11. And hopefully you shared with some people where you were on that particular day when you heard that indeed there was an attack on the World Trade Center. Uh, As soon as we heard about that, I'm on radio all day, mostly on the Moody Broadcasting Network, a little bit on point of view as well, uh, talking about this, trying to give people a context. Who was Osama bin Laden? What's Al-Qaeda? What about Islam? What about radical Islam? Those kinds of things. And of course, then the next day, we wondered if there would be another attack. And fortunately, there has not been one since then. But we also, in the midst of now 20th anniversary, recognized of what has been taking place in Afghanistan. And at the end, I'm going to give you some prayer targets for that as well. And this week, uh, Joel Rosenberg and others were speaking in York about what they called the New Middle East. And so I wanted to take you through this fairly quickly. But again, this is a picture of the Middle East. If you get a copy of Joel's book, he kind of breaks it down into the enemies, which are down here. Uh, I mean, excuse me, the enemies are up here, uh, kind of backwards, and then the uh, allies are down here. And, you know, when you think of Syria, Iraq, Iran, um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, you recognize what we are facing right now in terms of a very significant stress in uh, certainly the Middle East, even before the removal of American troops from Afghanistan. 
But one of the things I thought I would quote from for just a minute comes from Bing West. He has written quite a bit, and I'm going to read from his, Who Will Trust Us After Afghanistan? This is one of the questions people are asking. And he actually, as he has written about this, uses this, what many people think is an iconic picture of these desperate parents handing their children over the wire to the um, army um, and other military. Bing West, if you're not familiar with him, wrote the book The Wrong War about Afghanistan, but he was predicting, as this article came out, that on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the Taliban flag will fly over the U.S. Embassy. And he says, you know, 50 years from now, Americans may still stare in disbelief at the photo of a Marine plucking a baby to safety over the barbed wire in Kabul. And what he does is take us through some of the history, and I thought it might be worth just for a minute to give you a history lesson, because what he tries to do is break what has happened over these last 20 years in Afghanistan down into four points. Phase one is 2001 to 2007, and this is where we actually came in with an aerial blitzkrieg that shattered the Taliban forces. And because of that, there was an attempt by the general at that time, and that would be Brigadier General James Mattis. You remember him, Mad Dog Mattis, who now was recognizing that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda was actually locked away in Tora Bora and wanted to go in and root them out of the caves there. But instead, the decision was made by the acting general, Tommy Franks, to instead allow the African warlords to come in and to fight the battle. And they eventually, that is Al-Qaeda, escaped into Pakistan. Well, then something remarkably changed. The focus by the president then, George W. Bush, moved from killing terrorists to creating a democratic nation. And so all of a sudden we began to be more involved in nation building, which didn't work out quite so well. But even as early as 2002, we were assured by Vice President Dick Cheney, the Taliban is out of business permanently. Well, it turned out not necessarily to be the case. And because of that, we then um, only were training about 5,000 Afghan soldiers each year. And so he takes us through those first couple of years. Phase two, 2008 to 2013, this now, of course, is where you have President Barack Obama taking power. And because the argument had always been made that our involvement in Iraq was illegitimate, there was a sense in which... In some respects, Afghanistan sort of became the right war. And so President Obama actually argued that we could not afford to lose the war in Afghanistan, which is one of the reasons Bing West wrote his, uh, the first edition of his book about the fact that the strategy being used at the time probably would not exist. And part of it was just the fact that the Afghan forces, although they were certainly willing to fight, did not trust their chain of command. And he goes into a lot of details about that. But to keep moving, phase three then takes us to 2014 to 2020, in which eventually the troop strength, the U.S. troop strength dropped from 100,000 in 2011 to about 16,000 in 2014. And then eventually, truth strength dropped down to 10,000. And at this point, because President 
Donald Trump wanted to get out of Afghanistan, tried to negotiate with the Taliban, arguing that we would eventually remove individuals, including our American military, by the end of 2021, which leads to the fourth part, which he calls Bug Out 2021, because by early July we had already decided to leave the Bagram Air Base in the middle of the night, and that triggered a collapse and ultimately, we can see what actually took place. You know, some people said the Afghan forces were not willing to fight for their own country, but they did lose 60,000 individuals, so I want to give credit where that is due. But what have we now found ourselves with? Well, James Carafano, who I've interviewed many times, argues that we may be now less safe today than we were 20 years ago. Why is that? Well, first of all, we don't have a forward base which allows us to keep track of all of the and even establish counterterrorism activities. Now we have no longer been able to project force in those regions of the world, and so that's part of it. We also brought a good number of people over here from Afghanistan that were not thoroughly vetted. And if you have seen some of the stories, one of the individuals was supposed to get onto one of those planes, had a suitcase full of blasting caps and explosives. Fortunately, they caught him. But how many did they not catch? Matter of fact, they found that some of the individuals that came over here are on the terrorist watch list. Those who were in positions of power in Afghanistan, some of them were in prison in places like Pakistan or Guantanamo. And so that's the case. But also, we have unintentionally armed them rather significantly. If you have not seen some of these graphics, we've posted these before. Now, the argument that has been made by some of the fact-checkers is these are partially false, because the argument is being made that some of those uh, Humvees, armored personnel carriers, and things like that have been disabled, which is true. Matter of fact, when we talked about this uh, the other day, I said that is certainly true. Uh, some of these are very old. Some of those have been there 20 years. Some of them have been there just a few years. They tried to disable some of the aircraft and helicopters. Have they disabled all of those? I said, look, I have no access to military intelligence, but I can watch YouTube. And I've seen on YouTube a military parade that went through Kabul where Humvees and armored personnel carriers um, are actually being driven through the seas by the Taliban. So as Oliver North, who's been on our program many times, has said, we now may have the most significantly armed criminal enterprise in the history of the world. Whether that's true or not, it recognizes that if this doesn't cause you to pray for those position, people in leadership, we may find ourselves in a much more difficult situation. And now that the Taliban does have control, one of the reasons we went there in the first place, and even back to the 1990s, if some of you are old enough to remember, when remember then-President Bill Clinton launched various cruise missiles into Afghanistan to try to kill Osama bin Laden, this is why we were there in the first place, and would it be possible now for those? Matter of fact, one of the reasons people say this is decept uh, somewhat deceptive is Taliban may not have all of the arsenal. Very true. Uh, Al-Qaeda may have some of it. Uh, ISIS-K may have some of it. Does that make you feel any better? You know, so again, you're going to see people that when they see these pictures are going to say, well, that's not true or it's partially false. It's just the reality of what we've left behind. How much is functional? How much will be used? I think we'll find out over time. But also, there is a lot of evidence coming out now that there were some very significant warnings. 
One of the people I met when I was in college was a man by the name of Britt Hume. And uh, so I've been following him ever since. And he posted the other day from this article, which I went and read and even posted on our Point of View website, that there were times when as all some of this was unfolding in May and June and even July, it was like the red light was blinking and yet nobody was doing anything. As a matter of fact, they even paused in their attempt to leave the Bagram Air Base, hoping that maybe this would cause a reflection on the part of some of these people sitting around the table to not go ahead. But, of course, we know the rest of the story. And there are still, as far as we can determine, Americans and other Afghanis that are still in Afghanistan that are favorable to us. Some are getting out because of things like the Pineapple Express, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago, and others that uh, are certainly a real cause for prayer. So with that, this is one of the things we posted this last week uh, from Point of View, some of our prayer targets. And we identified six of those. The first is to pray for the Afghan Christians. There is a fledgling Afghani church. I'm fearful of how many will be left because, as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago here, the Taliban would go and grab the cell phones of individuals, and if they have a Bible app on them, they would kill those individuals. So they are seeking out the Christians anyway. So that is a real concern. And uh, Heather Mercer, who used to share an office with us at the Hope Center, who was established an outreach in Iraq, uh, actually was one of those women that was abducted by the Taliban, remember that, years ago, and talks about some of these Afghani Christians. And since it's getting late for time, I'll keep moving. The second is pray for American citizens trying to get home. At this time, we thought there were maybe a thousand Americans or people that would be favorable to Americans. That number is now in a few hundred, but still of great prayer target indeed. Pray for our allies in Afghanistan, Afghans that have supported us and are being targeted as well, and that is the case. Pray for the Afghan women and girls, and you know what is that is facing. They're losing their rights, and some of them are being ter- terribly abused. Number five, pray for those working behind the scenes and undercover. Um, there are a number of people that are aware of that. Uh, the Pineapple Express is one, but there's a couple others. Um, if you listen to Sean Hannity, he's uh, in touch with some of these people that are going in covertly to try to get some of these people out. Which, if you went and looked at the map, it is hard to get them out. Because if you go to the south or to the east, that's Pakistan. If you go to the west, that's Iran. If you go to Tajikistan or Turkmenistan, um, that's a little safer. By the way, a little footnote here. The Biden administration the other day said that they were actually going to help the country of Turkmenistan. I've got to get there's all these different sand countries. They're actually going to help them build their southern border. This is an administration that doesn't seem to be concerned about our southern border, but helping them with their southern border. Why is it? Because they're Afghan refugees. They're heading into the stand country. So that's an interesting little footnote that you might want to think about. And then finally, pray for the wars, veterans, and fallen and their families. I've heard a lot of people say that there are many that are saying, why did I serve? Why did I lose my colleagues? Why did I lose a limb? Why did I lose what I did for this? And I think one of the things that the the, uh, uh, pastor has said, one of the things that Joel Rosenberg has said and some others, is they have kept us safe. 
but you can understand the sense of futility that they have. The suicide prevention line for the Veterans Administration tripled in the number of calls as individuals were leaving Afghanistan, and you can imagine why they might have been feeling for that. So you might say, what can I do? Well, I think Joel gave us some really good ideas of what we can do. Support the Joshua Fund. Uh, pray for your leaders. Uh, do what you can to make a difference. And I hope, if nothing else, as we think about what happened 20 years ago, uh, we should learn some lessons from that, and we certainly should pray for those in authority uh, that indeed are running our military, those who are in the State Department, those in the intelligence agencies, and of course pray for the President and Vice President as well. Sad day indeed, but a lesson for us to learn and a reason for us to, once again, as we've learned in First Thessalonians, our hope is not in the world. Our faith should not be in the military. Our hope and our faith and love should be in Jesus Christ.